Today's conversations around race and poverty are confusing and often generate more heat than light. Few thinkers and writers on the topic have shared the light of reason on this topic better than Thomas Chatterton Williams. His two books, Losing My Cool, published in 2010, and Self-Portrait in Black and White, published in 2019, weave together personal memoir with philosophy to provide a fresh perspective on America's past and present reckoning with racial divisions. Williams joins me on Hardly Working today to discuss his personal history in education, his work as a writer, and he raises the challenging question of whether race, and the way that we think about it, actually exists. While most widely known as an American cultural critic, Williams works as a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a columnist for Harper's Magazine, and a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. Throughout our conversation, Williams speaks with the same clarity with which he writes, providing new perspectives on this long-standing American reckoning. I hope you find this conversation as insightful as I did. Thomas Williams, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me. It really is great to be here with you and to have you as part of AEI, which is really extraordinary. Um, and I, I regret that in the midst of the pandemic, I didn't even notice when, <laughs> uh, when you came on board. Um, and uh, and uh, I actually, my first encounter with your work um, was the uh, New York Times, the recent New York Times piece, which is fantastic. And we're going to talk about that. But um, really glad that you're here. Um, this podcast is about vocation. So we always like to ask about vocation when we're um, starting out on on these interviews. Something uh, that stuck out to me in your book uh, this is the most recent one, self-portrait in black and white, is this kind of porous connection between life and philosophy, which I thought was really interesting. You write not only about ideas, but memoirs, and then trying to connect those two things. Um, and I want to know, and I bet a lot of other people would like to know, how does one become you? You know, How did you find your way into this vocation of writing uh, philosophical works that are so um so interwoven with your own story yeah i mean that's a great question i um studied philosophy not so far away from here at georgetown and initially thought that what i'd like to do is to stay in the academy and get a phd and um read philosophy for the rest of my life um but at some point a professor told me that you have to really be sure that you'd be happy and content uh, reaching fewer readers than you might realize. Uh, and I thought about that a lot, and I thought about the type of writing I wanted to do, and eventually found my way to NYU, where I studied cultural reporting and criticism in the graduate department of journalism. And it seemed to me a way to satisfy the kind of writing about ideas and reading that I always wanted to do, but to have a chance to do it uh, in more mainstream ways that could potentially, you know, you're always not guaranteed a readership, but could potentially reach more readers. Um, and when I was at NYU, um, I had a wonderful teacher named Katie Royfe, who uh, is an excellent writer in her own right. And her class was on polemic and, um, an assignment she gave us was to write an op-ed, and I wrote an argument against the kind of gravitational pull that um, street culture can have uh, on black American identity, certainly the way that I felt growing up. Uh, there was quite a lot of pressure to conform to certain ideas of, uh, of racial authenticity. Um, and the piece was good enough that she said it should be published, and um, it almost went to the Times, but they passed for some reason, and I just sent it in frustration to the post and they ran it. Mm. And suddenly I, I, I was able to, to, to talk to agents and to realize that I could expand it into a book. What year was that? That was 2007. Okay. I was still in school for another year. Um, but I got an agent and I was expanding it to a book. And when we went to sell the book um, a few months later, a lot of editors were saying that, you know, some of the things that actually gripped them the most that I had never really thought were important were these little anecdotes when I heard my father telling me something or, mm. you know, I made a larger argument through a personal experience. And, you know, I was still learning to write at the time. So um, I said, oh, that was effective for you. And I kind of, you know, in learning to write that book, I learned to use myself as a kind of 
uh, prism for certain mm -hmm. ideas. And then I found that to be a natural fit for um, the way I wanted to write. I didn't go into um, even selling the book knowing I wanted to write a memoir, but it became a natural mode for me. That's interesting. You know, it's uh, you really met the moment. I mean, I think that this is uh, that kind of writing, particularly, um, you know, writing about these um, sort of highly charged, difficult issues, you know, of race and identity and uh, and what it means to um, to have a distinct personality and place in the world and yet be part of this broader enterprise that we call the United States um, is really a hot topic. Do you, I was going to ask you, do you have a hankering, do you ever have a hankering to go back to the longer form kind of work? Uh, the, you know, the, the career that you decided against, you know, um, I'm not going to be a full-time academic philosopher. Is that, how do you think about that? Because I think what, what strikes me about your work now is that it does speak into this moment. And yet, uh, most philosophers are not terribly influential while they're alive. It's like after they're gone that their work then resurfaces. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm wondering if you think about that uh, in terms of writing something that's more, um, that is more for, for a narrower audience of people who are engaged purely in the chase uh, around ideas. Well, the book I'm working on now that I haven't begun writing, but I'm researching and that I sold in the spring is not so much a personal book. It's trying to be a book of ideas, a history of ideas that led to the kind of paradigm shift of 2020, mm. trying to make sense of that and, mm. and trying to culminate in a defensive liberalism. I think there's a like creeping illiberalism mm. on both the right and the left that's concerning. So I'm trying to have um, a kind of conversation that's not just rooted in the personal and that's not... Um, too stuck in the present moment either, but I also still would like to reach uh, as many readers as possible. Mm -hmm. I do, though, have, there's a part of me that regrets not having gotten a PhD in philosophy and, you know, I'm 40 now. And so I know I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I, so I, I kind of reconcile myself to being a kind of autodidact kind of philosopher, the way my father was and the way that people were for many centuries before credentialism. You know, I try to, take seriously the idea that uh, a philosopher is somebody who's asking certain questions, looking for meaning. And so I'm not an academic philosopher, but I'm still drawn to um, being a person who works with ideas in a very serious way. I don't, I, I wouldn't strictly call myself a journalist or, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't call myself a memoirist. Mm -hmm. I guess writer is the most natural fit, mm -hmm. but I try to be a, a, a writer um, who's really, who's, who's doing a kind of thinking that um, could be a kind of, you know, philosophizing in the way that, uh, you know, this was done throughout our history. Sure, sure. And those bridges between sort of the purely academic world and the world in which people actually live. Yeah. Extremely um, important. Uh, and I, so I congratulate you on trying to build that bridge um, uh, through your own work. You brought up your dad, um, who figures prominently, um, it, I'm sure, in your life, but also in your thought uh, it t today. It's almost like uh, when I read you, when I read your books and your essays, it's almost like your dad's sitting on your shoulder, kind of. Yeah, and uh, he's kind of, he's like, <laughs> can we not have a third memoir, please? <laughs> he's had enough. He's, he's had enough of uh, featuring so prominently in your thought life. Huh? Okay, well, too bad for dad. but. For people who maybe haven't read your essay or the books, talk about your dad's, this was his business, right? Was kind of tutoring, um, if, I, if I read the book correctly, is that right? Well, it's, he's an interesting guy. I mean, that became the default thing that he was doing, but tutoring doesn't quite get it. I was trying to, in this piece in the New York Times Magazine about taking my daughter to Plato's Academy in Greece, uh, which is the archaeological ruins are in the middle of a nondescript park, actually. It's an amazing experience to go there. Um, I was trying to evoke what my father was doing in our house, which was supporting us by having students come and sit with him in, informally in the living room and study. Um, and he was preparing some of them, many of them for SAT tests or AP exams and things like that. But what he was really doing was kind of running a kind of academy where people were learning lots of stuff and reading lots of philosophy and having 
really Socratic dialogue, and you know, in the in the process, they were coming out equipped to um, get an eight hundred on their verbal score or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the he didn't right. see that as the, right. That's not the main as the end, yeah. and it wasn't his training. I mean, he has a PhD in sociology. He's a sociologist by training, and he was never wanting to stay in the academy either. And so he was doing sociology under like great society programs and stuff like that. And then got very kind of disillusioned with that. Um, and, you know, thought that it was a temporary move when he just needed to, you know, pay the rent to, to take some students on. And then it became a kind of a vocation for him. And it takes him back to, you know, the piece in the Times Magazine starts in my father's childhood because, you know, he was born in 1937, um, you know, segregated south he's in texas no one in his family is educated and uh he happened upon in a neighbor's uh property uh a copy of will durant's the story of philosophy and he asked his neighbor if he could have it and he gave it to him and he was struck by this image of socrates mm. and he wondered why this guy was so important and that eventually led him to plato's dialogues and this kind of knowledge that there was a world Outside of his immediate surroundings, there were ideas that transported him across time. Mm-hmm. Um, he participated in the universal. This saved his life, and this got him out of his very limited circumstances that he had been thrust into, allowed him to use the gifts that he had. Um, and that became very inspirational to me. And so that, but he also put you through this process, he, right? So yeah, so I, yeah. my brother and I were captive live-in students <laughs> in his informal academy, um, and you know that saved us because we were in a in a you know we were in a in an environment where a lot of people weren't thinking very hard about what they were going to do beyond the age of eighteen. They were roughly middle class, different levels of middle class, but not an educated middle class. Many of my neighbors white, black, Latino, didn't think very hard about going to college or ended up at mediocre schools or things like that. And my dad treated our getting an education as a matter of kind of like life and death. I would say that he, he, I mean, he took it seriously the way that immigrants take seriously Mm -hmm. educating their children. He didn't really approach our education the way um, most of the native born Americans I knew approached Mm -hmm. their children's education. That is, that is really interesting. There's so much in there that is important. I mean, I've done a lot of work on prisoner reentry programs, and I've always been especially um, captivated by the stories of how prison education programs um, have that kind of transformative effect that works very much from the inside out. It's not, it's not somebody on the outside shaping people so much as this encounter with uh, ideas often, not always, but often, this cognitive shift that occurs mm-hmm. where imaginations are opened up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you were talking about your dad, this this realization that there is this broader world um, out there and there's a history and there's a, a future and there's, uh, and we're part of that stream, uh, you know, and I, that seems to me to be the big shift in "quote unquote" saving people's lives, especially if they're in deep. Um, you know, yeah, it always has to be an internal shift that happens. It yeah. can't. Be, it can never be fully external. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've. Uh, there's a great. There's a great um, documentary on Netflix about the Bard. Um, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah. Wyatt Mason. He's one of the writers who works or teaches in that initiative. Yeah, I interviewed the the, the guy. I can't think of his name, but the the person who oversees it at, at Bard and uh, it was fascinating. So, I mean that, but that idea is that, that every human being to one degree or another needs that kind of rescue. You know, it's not just for um, people in prison or it's not just for poor people. It's actually for all people, you know, that need that kind of uh, awakening to this, this, this idea of, um, uh, you know the, the big ideas that are that are embodied in the classics and in liberal arts. Um, so this goes a little bit to uh, anybody who's listened to this podcast. One of my hobby horses, which is um, the imbalance. In fact, I'm testifying on this tomorrow up on the hill. The imbalance we have in the way that we educate between technical skill training and non-technical matters um, like the liberal arts 
um, and you know, as a as a category, um, can you just like make the case for me? Why should anybody care? I mean, we've kind of made that case already, but why should anybody really care about the exploration of uh, these classic texts? I mean, what what's in it for them? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, now more than ever, it should be pretty obvious that we need to know um, how to live well. We need to know what the good life is. We need to know what the ethical life is. I mean, pure technical competence taken to its end is Mark Zuckerberg. Mm -hmm. He can do anything he wants and look what he wants to do and look what our world is becoming. It's not just him. Look what happens when you don't have the kind of ideas that make you understand what you should be pursuing. Mm -hmm. You're just pursuing technical ends because you can do them. We're, we're doing things, uh, you know, we're going to have extraordinarily complicated and scary bioethical questions sooner than we'd like to think about all types of things, you know, about what we're going to do with our own babies, but also what we're going to do with animals. And we have to think through what we can do with the capabilities we have through scientific and technical knowledge. And I think that, you know, the, understanding how people figured out these questions in the past, understanding why some ideas are timeless, why human nature um, essentially stays the same. Um, these, are, these, these are profoundly important questions, and we don't have the kind of stabilizing um, institutions that we once could take for granted. You know, we don't have, uh, we don't all agree on a faith or any of these things that give us a kind of moral grounding, but we do have these books and this tradition that teaches us how to think, how to live, if we're open to exploring that tradition, mm -hmm. taking yeah. it seriously. Those, those questions of the oughts and shoulds of life, you know, uh, what, uh, what the good life actually should be. Um, I, Americans don't have a lot of patience for this. Um, and I don't know if that's true in France or not, um, in your experience, but my experience in, among Americans is we want to see as direct a connection as possible between the education we're receiving and the economic outcome that we're pursuing as that, that is yeah. the only definition sort of shared definition, um, that we have for the good life is, uh, is, you know the American dream. You know, economic mm -hmm. advancement. Is that is that I true that, in your experience generally? Or no, I think the French are different than Americans. Uh, if we can make big generalizations like that, uh, I think that they don't have a, an equivalent of the American dream. First of all, and they also do um, have a kind of reverence for non-practical ends and non-practical goods and one of those is you know tradition cultural the continuity of cultural traditions intellectual traditions and they have a kind of respect for the humanities that never never met with a kind of criticism that you know Richard Hofstadter pointed out decades ago in America exists the anti-intellectualism in American life that's not really I mean you have plenty of uneducated people in France but you don't have this kind of popular anti-intellectualism that's considered pragmatic and you know and 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 actually you know um not naive or something like that. You don't have that. Yeah. So the enlightenment and the, you know, scientific method that, you know, arose out of it, one of its headquarters was French enlightenment. And yet the French don't seem to have fallen captive to the same end. That, on the other hand, they couldn't get a vaccine together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. That's true. I don't know. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's excellent. So to, uh, pick your poison, as it were. Yeah, um, there's some good there's some good pragmatic stuff that comes out of America, but I do think when we look at you know Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, we have to wonder, you know, don't we need some don't we need some artists and some philosophers and some ethicists kind of you know engaging with um, these very powerful people and 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 organizations that are that are posing new questions and new risks. Yeah, I mean it's so interesting that. Talking about you know these major figures in high tech, uh, from the outside, it would appear that their own lives could have been improved by exposure to these ideas. You know, these are some reasonably unhappy people. Um, you know, <laughs> tend for, to be, yeah. yeah, they tend to be mm -hmm. because they are so focused on the technical and they're so ambitious and they've they've 
I, I mean, in many ways, I bless them because they're like, you know, they make so much of what we enjoy um, mm -hmm. possible. So I'm not, it's not a, you know, that I'm not saying I use Amazon all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not a waste of time. It's not, it's just that um, I always say that everybody wants to have a billion dollars, but nobody really wants to make a billion dollars because that is really hard work. And it actually is pretty destructive of people that I imagine it must be. I mean, yeah. it's, I think that's, if I can, I'm safe to say that's a problem. I don't think I'll ever encounter. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sour grapes. I'm pretty right? confident. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty confident <laughs> of that too, but uh, uh, I'm just too lazy for it. So let's get into your book, Self-Portrait in Black and White. What was the motivation for this book? I, I gather from what I've been able to read of your corpus, that you have undergone a pretty profound transition in your own thinking about yourself and about race and about these categories. So walk everybody through sure. um, that, that, that story and then, uh, and then how it culminated uh, in this book. Sure. So my father's descended from um, African slaves in America and in the American South and my mother's descended from mostly uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants uh, grew up out West. Uh, father would be called black in American society. My mother would be called white, but my father is also um, very certainly genetically mixed as, as most African Americans are. Um, but, you know, culturally, I grew up the way that we, we tend to do in America and define myself as black, even though my mother is white and my father's black, because there's the, the, the inheritance of this idea of a drop of black blood making somebody black. And both of my parents, you know, they have an ambivalent view about this because they always taught us that race isn't biologically real or meaningful, but that we would be, much the way Obama talked about it, we would be... Um, racialized as black in American society, and so it was important to to understand that and to you know to embrace it. And that's how I grew up. White kids didn't think I was white. Black kids were fully comfortable accepting you know all manner of physical characteristics under the umbrella of blackness. It wasn't until I was twenty nine and I was engaged to my wife, who's from Paris, and she's blonde haired and blue eyed as well as my much the same way my mother is that I started to realize that maybe I'm going to have I could imagine having children that would challenge my notion of racial categories, but then I kind of put it out of my head and mm -hmm. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times arguing that my ch children would be black and it was a kind of last gasp last gasp argument. I realized for an audience of one, and that was myself, I was trying to convince myself that I wasn't giving up anything. And when I had my daughter in 2013, when my wife had our daughter in 2013 and I stood by her side. Say we, when we yeah, had our when daughter. when we had our daughter. Yeah. <laughs> I was immediately aware that, uh, that it wouldn't, especially living in France where we were, where people didn't start with the same one drop assumptions that I had grown up in. I was aware that I wouldn't be able to so simplistically send her out into the world simply telling people that she was black and that would be the end of the conversation. It was never that I thought that I had a white daughter. It was that I immediately lost the ability to believe in these categories. I felt that they could not capture my daughter, and I felt by extension they couldn't capture me, and I started to suspect they couldn't capture actually the complexity of these multi-ethnic societies we increasingly inhabit. Um, tout court. Tout court is French for? For full stop. You full know? stop, tout court. Okay. So, <clears throat> uh, okay. So that we, the this idea of the single drop uh, that makes makes someone black or white is um, uh, a peculiarly you think a peculiarly American uh, idea. It's something that I don't know of another society that so rigidly enforces the law of hypodescent and the cultural custom of the one drop rule. In the Caribbean, you know, in Martinique or places like that, it's not that they didn't think that mixed people could be not white, but they had like, for example, 36 words for all of the different kind of, mm -hmm. uh, there's a spectrum. And so... A kid like my child, I was told in France, in Martinique, in another time would have been called Chape, mm -hmm. which is short for Echappé, which is French for escaped. But that means you have 
just the slightest bit of African heritage. I mean, these are highly um, hierarchical and kind of deeply troubling mm-hmm. linguistic customs that, uh, that, you know, our language is how we think. It's how we structure mm-hmm. the world. It's a way of, right. it's a way of denigrating Mm. being descended from Africa. You know, um, this is this is present all over where slavery touched. Mm. Um, the one-drop rule certainly doesn't exist in Africa, you right. know, and it really doesn't exi- exist in Europe because they didn't have slavery within their borders. So there's not the kind of um, feverish defense of white purity that, that existed in America because whiteness equals freedom and blackness equals unfreedom in American heritage. So French people had people that were partially African descended and it was Alexandre Dumas, the, the author of the Count of Monte Cristo was a quarter uh, African descended. It wasn't really a thing that defined his life the way it would have if he were in Alabama. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He was actually treated essentially as an aristocrat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, mm-hmm. you see what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Pushkin was partially Af- African descended. I had no idea. Yeah, Pushkin w- was. He was considered uh, the Black Russian. You know, he even wrote about his. You know, his African grandfather wasn't something that defined his life because it wasn't something that other Russians were scared of uh, because it wasn't a part of their society. But in other uh, slave societies like Brazil, it's just the opposite because they were. They had so many African-descended peoples in their society, and they tried to do this kind of forced whitening. You had this extraordinarily large um, mixed-race population, and very quickly it came to be the custom that any amount of white blood made you not black. Hmm. So it was the reverse one-drop custom, and that leads to all types of madness, too. One is not necessarily healthier than the other. <laughs> right? There's, there's madness in Brazil to this day uh, based on this kind of uh, insistence that you're not fully African. But there's always the kind of denigration of being African descended because that's linked to unfreedom. So it actually is, it's a class oppression first and foremost. Have you looked at the experience of um, like Liberia where you, you know, you had formerly enslaved people who were sent back or went back. Um, How does this, how does this uh, confusion over race categories sort of play out in that context? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not. I, I'm not really so familiar with Liberia, but I know that many African American tourists and voyagers are often shocked when they go to Africa to rediscover their roots. That Africans don't view them as African. Mm-hmm. They can even view them as white. Right. And you know, many um, African writers, uh, Chimamanda Adichie. Uh, or even Teju Cole, I think, has said this, are surprised in American society to be um, categorized as black because growing up in Nigeria, you think of yourself in, your, in, a, in a more specific way. Mm-hmm. You have this linguistic community, this tribal background, but you don't just say, here I am on this black continent, we're all the same. That's, I mean, that's not the way that people thought about themselves. And whites didn't think of themselves in terms of monolithic whiteness either until quite recently. You know, it was very recently that white Anglo-Saxon Protestants did not consider Southern Mediterraneans to be racially in the same group as them. And even in the North, they didn't consider Celtics to be racially in the same group as them. There is there is a, quite a lot of uh, rejection of the idea that the Irish were the same as the English. Yeah. Um, and then we see, like, in the, in the current context, uh, you know, you have many, many um, immigrants from Central and, and South America to the United States who, after a couple generations... See themselves as white. Yep. Oh, and, yeah, very and, much so. And, and adopt sort of the anti-immigrant ethos of white people. Some of them do anyway. Uh, oh, some of them, we consistently got this wrong in 2016 and 2020 when mm-hmm. we tried to understand the Latino right. vote. It's, it's very complicated yeah, how people racially self-identify um, and how they learn to affiliate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I've always thought that, you know, um, this idea that de- dem- demography is destiny is not, it's too simplistic. So that's not to say that in, I mean, going back to France, you know, France doesn't have, in your experience, doesn't have this one drop problem. It's not the same thing as saying that France doesn't have race problems. That's right. Yeah. No, there's no utopia. I'm, I've lived in France for 10 years. I think that there are 
aspects of a multi-ethnic society, multi-ethnic society that France and other European countries do better. And I think that, frankly, there are, there are ways of making a multi-ethnic society that America does do a lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on paper, France does it better in theory. And, and what aspects would you say are better? Well, they've gotten rid of the word race and all of their official communication. It's not a legally valid concept. Mm. Um, we reify the abstraction of race in America, but people in America live more integrated lives than people in France do, even though on paper, everyone's a French citizen. Every, every inmate in a French prison is French. This has to be the way you would want to get to organizing a society where you wouldn't um, essentialize so-called racial differences and make them meaningful. I want racial difference to be, uh, to tell, I want your racial characteristics, your physical ca- characteristics to tell me as little as possible mm. about who you are as an individual. France rhetorically goes towards that, but they live extraordinarily segregated lives. So, you know, this is a really difficult topic because one, uh, you know, a, a, a typical response or what's been characterized or caricatured as a typical response of a white American who is secretly harboring uh, racist feelings is to say, I don't see color. Uh, and that that actually um, is, in many instances, very offensive to the person to whom it is being said. And it almost feels like a no-win situation. Right, because it's complicated because, as in many things, it matters what they mean when they say that. It's not the words. Mm. There's a way of not seeing color that's exactly what we should be getting to. And I think that's what Martin Luther King Jr. meant. Mm. And I think that's been misunderstood or oversimplified uh, in the decades since. But there's a way, and I write about this in my book, that like my white cousin in California wants to jump straight to, I don't see color, that's an evasion. Mm. Uh, It just is an evasion. She doesn't want to actually grapple with um, difficult histories. She doesn't want to actually take a moment to think why the way that people are racialized in society could be significant. Or the way you weren't recognized by your grandfather as... Right. She wants to just say, well... I don't know. I don't see the color, but the, the grandfather did. And so it actually is something that we can't just jump to that. But of course, there's a way of saying in this, I, I'm, in, I'm an advocate for a colorblind society. I think that we should be encountering each other as individuals. We don't have an eye color conscious society or a hair color conscious society. I'd like to get to the point where the melanin in the epidermis is as significant as the melanin in the iris. Yeah. And I think we could get there, um, but we can't get there by being uh, facile about it. And mm-hmm. I think there's a way that this is an evasion of difficult conversations. Okay. So uh, I, I'd like you to just sort of continue that out, you know, and talk about the right way of attempting to get to the end that you're describing, which is that um, we don't impute much of anything through these characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, what? How would we go about doing that? So I don't know if this is. I, this is the. Yeah, I, I know this is the wrong question to ask. No, it's I the right question. That, yeah. I don't know if this is something that would be. I don't know how this would be received at AEI. Uh, I really but, don't. But you know, I doesn't think, matter. AEI doesn't have any institutional <laughs> positions on anything. So. You know, in America, look, race is classed, and class is often raced. And so I think that people do best in my own life. This has certainly been the case. People interact as equals when they meet each other as equals. People uh, understand each other's humanity the best when uh, they meet on equal terms and with dignity. How does that happen? That means that we have to address problems of class that are, you know, for historical reasons and now for self-perpetuating cultural reasons intertwined with what we mistakenly think is race. I don't think we can get past that without extricating, without addressing some of these things, you know. So there's also an enormous amount of white poverty, mm-hmm. and that's also having profound implications on the health of our democracy. We have to actually, at some point, uh, figure out how to make people meet each other with dignity and on reasonably equal terms. Uh, and by equal terms, I don't mean that everybody gets Mark Zuckerberg's level of wealth, but I mean that... People have to be able to be reasonably confident that they can 
get sick and it won't bankrupt them. People have to actually be able to have children and provide care for their children so that they can work. People have mm -hmm. to be able to have access to a good education. I mean, these are things that I do think actually happen a lot better in many Western European societies. We've, we've, we've tolerated quite a lot of class inequality, and that happens to be uh, overlapped with a kind of racial identity, but it's not the same exact thing. And so I think that we get into this identity conversation, and it also is a way of missing the larger point of what would actually heal the society. It's not by always emphasizing the racial difference that we'll get to the solution. It's, it's, it's going to at some point have to be that we have to take care of the, of, of, of the, the gross inequality that exists. That's very, very interesting. I wrote a, a piece for, um, I'll send it to you so you can look at it, but for Law and Liberty um, mm. Libertarian website. You've, I Richard Rich, yeah. yeah you've I liked him a lot. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote for them. The title was The Common Ground of Human Dignity, mm -hmm. and the essay was looking at the popular reception of the Hillbilly Elegy movie and, you know, not the greatest movie ever made, right? It's it, uh, two really strong Hollywood female actresses who are just incredibly, you know, like 10,000 watt bulbs. And then you've got some younger actors who just, mm -hmm. it was a mismatch there. Mm -hmm. But I was really struck uh, by the sort of the, the reaction to the movie um, among uh, elite opinion, or, or, uh, elite academia in particular, of there's a, there was a kind of disdain and, and almost contempt for even talking about the problems of intergenerational white poverty. That seems just like, don't go there. Right. You know? uh, and I, I, I agree with you. I think that if you look at sort of the different roots, but same fruits, right? You've, and and African-Americans have struggled with consequences of slavery and Jim Crow and discrimination. And there are very, and, and they've got a whole bunch of uh, disproportionately, a whole bunch of negative outcomes associated with that. And poor whites, while they haven't had the, the, the same uh, inputs, as it were, in terms of discrimination, have very similar kinds of pathologies. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. You know, it, it, and that should be pointing us toward common solutions. A common solution, or some common solutions here. Not it, one size doesn't fit all, but but right. there there are there's a lot more common ground there than I think is generally. Um, oh, I recognized. agree. I agree, and you know, I think that. We came to a point where we're, we're, we're defying common sense to say that you can have generation upon generation upon generation of lack, and that wouldn't create patterns of behavior that would be passed on and be difficult to break out of. We're not allowed to talk about cultural um, aspect dimensions mm. of, of intergenerational poverty because everything is supposed to be systems and everything is supposed to be something that doesn't, I guess, imply degrees of agency even if that agency is hard to recognize because you're you're, you're in a web of mm -hmm. of agents you know what i mean mm -hmm. so i think that we have a, it's, a, it's difficult to talk about these problems um i think that in the dispassionate way that we need to i think in a lot of ways this debate has become too emotional mm. um to get solutions we have to kind of tamp down the emotional response and just be open to uncomfortable conversations yeah yeah. Um, and this isn't happening uh, when we talk about poor whites or poor blacks. Yeah, no, you have to be able to sit with that a little bit, you know, and just say, yeah, this makes me, this does make me uncomfortable. Um, uh, again, going back to the reaction to the film, one of the, I, I, I imputed this to what I was reading in terms of the criticisms of the film, but there's almost a sense that because uh, low-income whites were complicit in the webs of discrimination against blacks that they somehow don't deserve recognition, uh, they, even if it was their great great grandparents or right. whoever. Right. But there's that was what I I came away with was oh they they 
this is part of the punishment uh, right. for having participated in. But this, yeah, but there's a punishment for all of us when then you have an opioid crisis or you have a kind of reactionary politics that mm. simply wants to break things. I mean, mm. we are in a society together, and so it's in all of our interest uh, to lift the, to lift the lowest levels as, mm-hmm. as, as high as possible. I, I mean, that's clear to me. Mm. Um, we have a very strange conversation going on now where what you say on the one hand, you know, is, is, is an argument that's made. And on the other hand, there's an argument that's made that when two non-white groups come into conflict like Asians and blacks have in the past year, that's also white supremacy. Yeah, right. <laughs> we have, we're not having real conversations, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Everything gets, everything gets so, inverted or run through this filter um okay so one of the one of the questions i have um as somebody who tries to do research on criminal justice or on workforce development careers that kind of thing is that racial minorities are disproportionately represented in populations that struggle right whether it's prison population or educational failure or not enough access to higher education or whatever it is. But, and so we are, in a way, we're so dependent upon these categories, even for the analysis of the problem, the, the social science problems that we're interested in and, try, and interested in trying to fix. Is it actually possible to disentangle this, I mean, and is it desirable to try to disentangle this completely if we're serious about, you know, coming up with solutions that are directed toward uh, people who are in need? Um, does that, does that's a good question. question. Make sense? Yeah, it does because you know they don't measure these things in France, and so it's difficult to know certain problems. You, it's difficult to know, for example, um, how to talk about bias in the criminal justice system in France because you you don't you can't measure. You know that there are more Arabs are disproportionately represented, for example, but you, it's impossible to measure. Um, so there is like statistical value in some of these. Um, illusory names but i don't think that that means that we have to have a um a mainstream conversation that acts as though these are real categories so i guess you could call pe- people that are you could use the term black in a way that doesn't make that doesn't reify the concept of race it could just be a descriptor i think also you would get a lot of solutions though if you took um I don't know, demographic uh, categories into like if you if you took location into account as they do so affirmative action in France has been tried but based on zip code and that actually gets a lot of the you don't have to um, at Sciences Po or one of the Grand École let people in based on them writing on an application that they're of Arab or African descent you can you can prioritize access by certain under um, privileged neighborhoods and that actually gets a lot of the same solution but it doesn't reify Concepts of racial difference, and so you know, this is, I'm not an expert on this, but mm-hmm. I think that there, we need to be more imaginative in how we go about thinking these things, so we don't keep producing, reproducing the logic of the plantation, mm-hmm. which I don't think serves us well. I'd be more willing to err on the side of getting rid of the kind of racialization of the of, of the conversation and and, tr- and trying to find new ways to 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 lift uh, people struggling and fix inequality. It's interesting. We have a. This conference will have occurred before this podcast gets published, but um, AEI's domestic policy team is doing kind of a joint effort with our housing team for a conference on the in, in mid-November. And um, the basis of that conference is a study that Brookings did looking at the wealth gap between blacks and whites uh, in America, particularly around housing. And they um, they applied a series of statistical controls to the sample, and they determined that uh, or regressions that, that determined that race was the issue that was creating uh, the difference in property values between predominantly black neighborhoods and non-black neighborhoods, uh, not necessarily white, but um, white, Asian, Hispanic. You know that that the, there was. Race was operating there, and what they then went to was, well, since we have 
it must be this. It must be race. Uh, we got to know who the racist is, basically. We got to identify somebody who's animated by race to create these inequities. And they decided, the, the Brookings researchers decided that it was the people who do the appraisals. Of right. The yeah. Yeah. I remember this. Yeah. yeah okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I've been talking with, I was started talking with the folks at the housing center and I said, well, they they applied a, uh, some additional controls around, um, uh, let's see, it was uh, single um, single borrowers. You know, instead of you have two people on the note for the house, you only got one, uh, and a, and a variety of a, a couple other kind of big socioeconomic uh, distress categories. Um, and that nearly eliminated the difference between the house values. So then I asked them to go look at, you know, like low income white communities to see what the difference was in property values as opposed uh, compared to uh, non low income uh, white communities. And again, there is there is no difference between huh. the, the the black census tracts and the white census tracts. So. And the, the underlying problem here is the housing staff argue is that if we keep applying solutions that are not addressed to the right problem, we only deepen the well, problem. That is, that, I mean, that's definitely true. If you apply solutions that don't address what's actually the underlying ailment, then you're never going to, you're just, you're, you're treating symptoms and you're never going to solve the problem. But, you know, like to the larger question, I, I don't know. What happens in housing? I remember seeing something on Twitter where a very well-to-do interracial couple was getting their house appraised, and when the appraiser saw the the black husband, the house was valued like four hundred thousand dollars less than when he only saw. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Well, I'm or or perhaps it was even a black couple, and they just invited their white friends over to show the house, and they had. But I, you know, I can't. I, I mean, do I believe that there's real racism in American society still? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't know how that plays itself out. I I also believe that it's it's an entirely different country that I live in than than my father lived in. Yeah. You know, and so the the the, the way that the conversation goes, where racism is kind of permanent, it's intractable, and it's always. Um, maximally oppressive. I, I think that that is also a way of um, never getting the solution going because we've clearly uh, made extraordinary uh, progress and change. And I think that we should be understanding what works, how it works, how we've gotten, you know, so many people uh, actually um, into the educated, you know, uh, middle and upper middle classes and why poverty is sticky and why it's sticky yeah. for, for even for whites. If we're in a white supremacist society, mm -hmm. it's a color caste system. Mm -hmm. Why are there so many poor whites? Mm -hmm. I think we're having um, a discussion that gets off track a lot because it's so driven by, um, by identity and by raw emotion. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, and, you know, uh, and when we get around to having this conference, I think it's really important to acknowledge that, uh, you know, None of this data around housing, for instance, uh, and and the fact that you know poor whites and poor blacks look an awful lot alike in terms of their socioeconomic outcomes, is to in any way underplay the historical weight and gravity right. of the discrimination that um, blacks have faced in American society. It's uh, it's. It's an absolute reality. It's a matter of historical fact. I yeah. think you yeah. know, we can all recognize that. And then, I mean, at some point, we do have to get out of the past and get into the present and hopefully into mm -hmm. the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's All Saints Day. Did you know that? Today's All Saints Day. I'm always confused about where exactly <laughs> that falls in relation to Halloween. <laughs> right. So, it's All Hallows Eve and then Halloween and then All Saints Day. Okay. So, I think that's how it goes with... Today's uh, the second, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, anyway, I was as I was I was looking through the readings this morning. I said, oh, it's All Saints Day, and and I I tweeted this out earlier today. It was just like take a moment to reflect on the saints in your own life that have given you the encouragement, 
the support, the love that you needed in order to move into your life. Um, and so I'd like to ask you that question. I mean, we know about your dad, but can you talk about others who, uh, the other saints in your in your life who kind of were there offering those those words of encouragement, those um, uh, tangible supports, whatever it is. Yeah, but, well, I mean, that's certainly my mother. I mean, mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to have parents that didn't just tell me, you know, to work hard and do my best uh, and that they valued me regardless, but also, you know, uh, told me to to do what I believe was, was worthwhile and not to just do what would please them. Or, you know, my mother told me always, she quoted Shakespeare, to thine own self be true. And she really meant it and she really mm -hmm. supported me. Um, my mother's a kind of secular saint <laughs> in my life, selfless, um, the glue of the family. And then, you know, they're the literary saints that you encounter. You mm -hmm. don't know them personally, but on the page, you know, James Baldwin is one for me. I mean, it's become very popular to cite him, but I, that's not a reason not to cite him. He was always... What's what's the James volume, uh, James Baldwin volume that you turn to? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think that uh, Sonny's Blues is an extraordinary short story. Giovanni's Room is a kind of perfect novella, but it's the essays for me that, you mm -hmm. know, like uh, Notes of a Native Son. It's a, it's an extraordinary collection, his debut collection. It's astonishing that he wrote that at the age he did. You know, he has essays, The Discovery of What It Means to Be a, uh, an American, when he's over in Europe and he realizes this white GI from Texas, he and I have something in common that no, we'll never have in common with the Frenchman or the African here. And for better or worse, we're stuck with each other. And, you know, I really felt that when I first moved to France that, you know, uh, we are not, Europeans are different. We, something happened in America and, and, and Africans are different. Mm. Something happened. We are, we are, we are a people over here mm. and we need to learn how to, live together. And James Baldwin thought that the solution was love. And you'd get laughed out of the room today yeah. saying that. Yeah. But I think he was right. And he said, you know, I want to be a good writer and I want to be a decent man. And I think that's as good advice as, mm. as you can get. Yeah, that's tremendous. Yeah, it's a great point about being um, mentored, mentored by the dead, you know, uh, in, in the things that we read. Um, I've got those figures of, of my own that I turn to over and over again who, like, they're long gone and they never knew me, um, but they know me um, and they mm -hmm. speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They anticipated knowing you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. This has been a terrific conversation, uh, and I'm so glad you're here at AEI, uh, and I'm really looking forward to this continued dialogue. I think there's a lot of good work we can do together. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.